morning, church. This is Matthew 5, starting in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right. Let's see if this works. Beautiful. All right. Good to see you guys again. So again, if you're just slipping in, my name is Josiah. I'm one of the pastors here. And we have been tracking through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is uh, Sermon on the Mount is chapter 5 through 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, also recorded in Luke. And um, we have decided to do this as a church um, in an expositional way. We do this when we walk through books of the Bible. We do this um, verse by verse. And so uh, the challenge sometimes is this, that we get to topics that we otherwise would not have spoken about. And I'll confess today, this morning, that um, this is one of those topics for me. Um, that I... Early this week, was saying, I do not want to preach this text. Um, and the reasons are probably pretty obvious, because divorce is a very intricate and messy situation, and it has ruined many people's lives. And all of us, in one way or another, are probably affected by divorce, whether direct, directly or indirectly. And I have done my best ability this morning, this week, in preparing what I hope to be a very thoughtful uh, approach to this text, a prayerful approach to this text, um, and an honest approach to this text and what Jesus has to say for us. The reason we do this as a church is because we believe that God's word, when we when we pull it apart, when we begin to inspect it, and we can be able to understand it more rightly. And that the word of God is not just words for us to just come and, and tickle our ears on a Sunday morning and then feel better about ourselves for the rest of the week. But the word of God is our authority and it changes us and it shapes us. It is God's word to us. And so in pulling it apart and dissecting it, we can better rightly understand it and therefore rightly apply it to our lives. That's the beauty in God's word is that he gives it to us as a gift to be able to do this, to study it rightly, to be students of the word. And so before we begin this morning, um, I wanted to just preface it with that and to say this, that um, I do not come in here assuming are presuming that I know your story and the, the complexities of your story. But what I do know 
is that every word in God's Bible here, in his word, every single word is good for us, is for our good. And in the words of John Stott here, he says this. John Stott's a preacher in, in the UK and just a gift. Um, I rely a lot upon him when preparing for sermons. But he says this, it is be- when he was writing this commentary, he says, it is because I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this in every subject is good, intrinsically good, good for individuals, good for society, that I take my courage in both hands and write on. So it's the same premise that we approach the text today. So would you, um, before we go any further, would you just open your hands with me? And just as a sign to just hear from God and say, God, I'm going to pray this and just agree with me if you would. God, we are here to hear from you. We want to listen. We want to be attentive. So whatever you speak, oh God, we want to listen and we want to obey. Word of God, speak to us. Breath of God, breathe upon us. May we hear you, feel you, sense you, obey you. And follow you, Christ. Amen. Amen. So, we're going to, um, there's two different topics here that we're covering. Um, I've only mentioned divorce. Um, and that's because we're going to spend the majority of our time handling that just for um, the, the weightiness of the topic. Okay? Um, what I want to do, though, is use the oaths topic and just kind of use it as an illustration for divorce. So we're going to start actually reading um, in the oaths passage here, verses 33 through 37. We're going to start there, and then we're going to take, and then we're going to go back, um, take that and jump back into 31 through 32. So it may be titled Oaths in your Bible. We're going to call it Honesty of Speech. That's really the driving, um, that's what's driving here for Jesus. It's honesty and speech. And so Um, Let's just read it real quick here together. Um, Just read verse 33. It says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Okay, so where does this come from? What is Jesus talking about? Again, Jesus is referencing all through through the Sermon on the Mount, the Old Testament, and the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. And he's saying, You have heard it said, because the people that he's speaking to are full aware of what he's talking about. So he's saying, you've heard it this way. So he gets to the point, he says, you've heard it said in the days of old, um, to, those, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This is really a summary of the Mosaic law on oaths. So not any one particular um, passage that he's quoting here, but it is from, if you're taking notes, you can write these down and look at them later. Again, we're kind of breezed through this first part, but Exodus 20, verse 7, that's the third commandment when he, uh, Jesus given that. Um, or God giving that to Moses. Leviticus 19, verse 12, Numbers 30, verse 2, and Deuteronomy 23, 21. All of these describe perjury and the breaking, the breaking of an oath. So that's what Jesus is referencing here when he says, you've heard it said this way, not to swear falsely. And uh, the Pharisees, He knows who he's talking to because the Pharisees have distorted this law. They've come in and they've taken this concept of perjury and they've tried to figure out a way to not create perjury. How do I obey God so that I can be right in his sight 
also look good in people's eyes and kind of do what I want to do. Okay, so this is kind of what they're doing. And, and the way we can see this most clearly is through um, Matthew 23. And so again, if you take time to go look at Matthew 23, um, you can see how Jesus calls the Pharisees blind fools. He calls them blind because of this. Their whole argument is based on a fallacy. It's a false premise that they even make the argument. And what they're doing is they're saying, well, take for instance um, in uh, Exodus 20 and the third commandment, and God says, um, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Right? Their emphasis was on thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God and not emphasizing in vain. So they would take things and say, well, God's name is on this and God's name is not on this. And so therefore, I, if I pledge to this or I make an oath to this, then I must keep it. And if it's not really in God's name, then I don't really have to keep it. You see how that's kind of a twist. And so Jesus says, you blind fools, your premise is all wrong. And this is what he's talking about when he says here in 34, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for what is heaven? It's God's. Or the throne, um, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, because the earth is God's, Jerusalem, Jerusalem is God's, or by even your own head, you're God's. So your whole premise of saying you can remove God from this and put him on this is completely false. Everything underneath the heavens is the Lord's. The Lord is the Lord of all things. And he says, by make, making an oath upon your head, you cannot make one hair white or black. This is to emphasize that. And whatever kind of stability you think you have in and of yourself is wrong. You can't add a day to your life. You can't take away a day. The Lord is the Lord of all things. And then he adds this in verse 37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. James picks us up in chapter 5, verse 12. James 5, 12. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into condemnation. This is because the Pharisees are focused. This is kind of the big idea of here. The Pharisees are focused on not breaking an oath. Focus on not breaking an oath. And Jesus says it's all about truthfulness. So it's not so much on your concentration, your preoccupation with just not doing the wrong thing. It's a focus and attention, preoccupation upon being truthful, doing the right thing, you could say. The Christian's words should be trustworthy. Can we admit that? Can we say that? Like our words should be trustworthy. But we know that untruthfulness is in our hearts. And so what do we do? We tend to say, I swear, I swear to God, right? I swear to happen. Or we may use superlatives, you know, and just kind of embellish our whole argument. You know what I'm saying? It's the greatest beyond anything you've ever dreamed or imagined. Taking God's words there, right? We embellish it in order to make ourselves look 
more or seem more credible in people's eyes. And Jesus is saying, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Simply answer. And in doing so, in trying to swear to something and trying to embellish something, you're actually nullifying your even credibility because you're having to make it something that it's not. Jesus says this comes from evil. It's either evil in our, because our hearts are wicked or it's evil because it comes from the father of all lies. The one, the founder of all lies from the very beginning, Satan. This is his attempt. And so we might ask two questions here when we see this passage. Is, and those might be this. Uh, can we take an oath at all? Is it wrong to take an oath? Is that what Jesus is saying? There are some, the Anabaptists and the Quakers have um, um, they have uh, refrained from any type of oaths in their lives. Um, that's what they've deduced from this. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. And here's a good reason. Because God swears upon his own name. God swears to his own name. Now, in understanding that, why does God swear to his own name? And how can God do that? And Jesus said, to never take an oath. Well, because God's swearing to his own name, God making an oath to his people, is not to kind of form any kind of credibility with himself but it is because of our unbelief. It's not because he needs more credibility. It's because of our unbelief. And so the question is, can I take an oath? And the answer really is, just, is answered in a question is, well, do you need credibility? Jesus replied, think about this. Jesus replied when instructed to do so under oath in Matthew 25 or 26 when he was before the Sanhedrin. And he says, swear before the Lord that you are the Christ, the Messiah. And he did so. He didn't blink an eye at it. Marriage requires vows. We must promise, we must take an oath to this end. But this has nothing to do or less to do with the promises or the oaths and everything to do with our hearts. It has everything to do with our hearts. Think about why we have an oath in office, why we take marriage vows, why there is an oath in the courtroom. Why, why do we do that? Well, it's based upon the premise that we are liars. The reason we have oaths, the reason we make promises is because we lie. If we didn't, there'd be no need for it. And so Jesus is saying to the people that are there, he's saying, May your speech be honest. And if it is, then simply a yes will do or a no will do. Make sense? John Stott, again, I think it's my last quote by him, but he's good. It says, both divorce and oaths were permitted, permitted by law. Neither were commanded. Neither should be necessary. Both were permitted, neither were commanded, and neither should be necessary. Um, one of my favorite movies is The Prestige. Have you guys seen this? Yeah? Cool. Um, thanks, guys. Um, the Prestige. So the, the real, uh, <laughs> um, the concept behind the movie is that there's two magicians and they're battling to who can do this, this amazing trick. Um, that's kind of a, a really bad synopsis of it, but 
That's the gist of it. And in the movie, they have three different um, parts to every trick, every magic trick. And that, I don't know if this is real or not, so if you're a magician, you can tell me afterwards. But there is, as they say in the movie, the pledge. This is where the magician tells the audience what he's going to do. And then there's the turn, where something happens in the trick where you kind of feel off balance, and you don't really know, is that supposed to happen or not? And then there's the prestige, where the magician reveals what he wants you to see, what he wants you to believe. This has been the classic work of the enemy since the beginning. The magician uses what's called misdirection to make this happen in the turn. So if the magician can make you concentrate upon his left hand so that you don't see what he's doing with his right hand, then you believe what he's doing in his left hand is actually reality, when the trick is actually done in the right hand. It's a preoccupation, it's a misdirection from reality. And Satan has done this since the beginning. Satan's main occupation, church, is this, to devalue God's trustworthiness. He wants to devalue God's trustworthiness to his church. And he will do this by keeping you preoccupied with what appears to be godliness, but it's a distortion of the truth. If he can misdirect your attention with his left and keep you from noticing what he's doing is right, then he will have you convinced that what you have seen is truth. And I think one of the ways we do this often is we get preoccupied with not sinning. We get preoccupied with, I just, I just can't do this. If I just refrain from this, and I just, I just need, to, I need, to, I need to stop looking at porn. I need, to, I need to stop lying. I need to stop doing this. I need to stop doing this. And if I just concentrate on it hard enough, then I'll stop doing it. Well, we, we can know just rationally, right, that that doesn't work. That our eyes need to be refocused. Our attention, our, our preoccupation needs to be turned towards something better for us. And that's Christ. This is exactly the same thing that's happening in the context when Jesus is speaking on divorce. We're going to title this part marriage, or excuse me, fidelity in marriage. So let me give you kind of a context of what's happening here again. During this time, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of Jews. And there is a very low view towards women during this time for the Jews. And they are under the occupation of Rome, so they're under Roman rule. And there's an even lower view of women in the Roman world. And so Jesus knows that he's speaking to a people in this context who are viewing through a certain lens and also through a lens of another authority. And they're seeing things through a worldview that's contrary to what the way God has made it. It was not so from the beginning, but it is now in this century. And he knows he's speaking to, and in, in this context, Jesus speaks these words in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, there is a cultural debate happening here. So when Jesus speaks these words, everybody knows what he's talking about. And there were two rabbis 
One was Shammai and one was Hillel. And the debate circled around Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to read this passage for you. You don't have to turn here. Unless you want to, you can. And what you are about to hear is a huge, huge hypothetical statement, hypothetical situation. So in, when I read this here, I want you, I want you to hear all these, these conditional clauses that come out of this, right? So this is Moses now to the people. who says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving for in inheritance. Now, I would love to just spend the whole morning talking about who he's talking about, when and where, and what, wh- whose wife is when, and I don't, I don't, I'm completely lost, but we don't have time to do it. The real thrust of this is that in this passage, the context is that a man who divorces his wife should not remarry that wife, that woman, right? And the um, the debate is circling around in this context really one phrase. And it's this phrase, debar erva. Say that with me. Debar erva. Say it one more time. Debar erva. And it means some indecency. Debate is, well, what does it mean when Moses says some indecency if a man finds some indecency in his wife? And so Shammai who died around the time when Jesus was crucified, was, a, was on the conservative end of this. And he was a, a rigorist for um, interpreting this passage. And Hillel was probably the more progressive left. And he was very lax with the passage and gave a lot of room and opening for what was permissible in this passage. And then, if you, if you know, um, in, in theological terms, this is, it's called the exception clause. So this is found in Matthew 5 and, and Matthew 19. We're going to look at Matthew 19, because we're going to look at, really, what it means to be married. You might be looking at this text here with me, and you, you might be saying, Jesus, I don't think you really understand what you're talking about. Um, just previously, you said adultery is, if you if you think about a woman lustfully in your heart and you've committed adultery, and, and now you're saying that if you are to divorce outside of sexual morality or remarry, uh, then you, you commit sexual um, immorality or you, you commit adultery and you cause someone else to commit adultery. So I don't think you really understand. I think Jesus would say to us this morning that you, my friend, don't really understand what happens in marriage. And so, to better understand this, we have to look at Matthew 19. If you would, turn with me there. This I would like you to turn, if you can. Matthew 19, 
And we're going to read this together. He says in verse 3, The Pharisees came to him, Jesus, and he tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The Pharisees, just as their preoccupation was upon, how do I not break an oath? Their preoccupation was on divorce. How do I get out of marriage? What are the terms? What are the conditions? How, what is lawful for me to get out of my marriage? And Jesus just turns it right back on him and he says, it's not about divorce. Jesus is not interested in divorce. He's interested in marriage. And so he uses Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to confirm this. From the beginning, God created them male and female. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall cling to his wife. Hold fast to her and the two shall become one flesh. Darren Whitehead says it this way in his message on this. Pharisees want to know, is it permissible? And Jesus says, I'm not sure it's possible. The two become one flesh. Two made one cannot be made two again. We have a tendency to think about marriage in our culture as a contract. I do this and you do that. As long as you do this or that, then I will do this. And it's agreed upon terms that we sign, but a covenant is different. There are no terms or conditions. And it is not signed, but it is pledged. And it says that I will, as it says here in Genesis 2, the man will hold fast to his wife. With everything he's got, with every last ounce and strength and might inside of his mortal body, he will hold fast to his wife, and so the wife to her husband. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, from now on, it's not your love that sustains the marriage, but the marriage, your love. It's not your love that sustains the covenant. It's the covenant that sustains your love. You will fall in and out of love. You will feel good one day and you will feel bad the next. You will love your spouse one day and you will despise him or her the next. But it is not your feelings or your love towards your spouse that keep this covenant. It is the covenant that keeps your love. May we be reminded of that. Verse 7 of 19. They said to him, why then, Jesus, did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Okay, so the Pharisees here, they reveal their erroneous um, attitude and understanding of this text to begin with. They say, well, why did Moses command? If you read the Deuteronomy 24 again, you see that Moses never commanded a thing. Again, this is a hypothetical statement. If this happens, and he gives a what's called a concession. 
It is permissible for this to happen. If this, then this can happen. And Jesus throws this right back on them. They say, why did Moses command? And Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses, what? Allowed. Moses allowed you to. Because of your hardness of hearts. Because we are sinful. Because we're liars, we need oaths. Because we're sinful, there's divorce. But it was not so from the beginning. And Jesus claims this. He says, this was not supposed to be. But because you are sinful, because of your hardness of hearts, I will allow concession. I will allow there to be an opportunity for this to happen. A hardness of hearts, Holman in his dictionary, he says this, he said, it literally means a stubborn attitude. I'm behind on my notes, aren't I? Here we go. Hardness of hearts is literally a stubborn attitude that leads a person to reject God's will. And I plead with you, church, today, as the author of Hebrews says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let it be known that God hates divorce. He hates it. Malachi 2.16 says, God hates divorce. It is not in his intention. It is not in his plan. Ugly is divorce. And we know this. I know many people in my life who have had divorce. I've been affected by divorce both from parents to friends, family members. And every single time, it is horrible. It was never God's intention from the beginning. But because of our hardness of hearts, Jesus gives a reluctant concession. And Moses gives a reluctant concession to the people. Matthew 9, he says, or Matthew 19, 9 says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The, sec- the word sexual immorality in the Greek is pornea. And it obviously is where we get our word pornography from. And it's a comprehensive word. It's including adultery, fornication, and really any unnatural device or vice, any natural, unnatural vice in us. Pornea. The Hebrew derivative um, is used in the story of Hosea. Do you know the story of Hosea? Raise hands, no. Not being tested or graded. Funny enough, um, CP Kids, our children's church, is teaching on this this morning. It's not planned whatsoever. And a story of Hosea is about a man who was called by God to marry an unfaithful woman. God told him to marry her, even though she was unfaithful. And there was, in long story short, they. She leaves him, and she leaves herself to go be prostituted. And God tells Hosea to go buy her back. Go purchase her back. Gomer was her name. So Hosea comes in, he puts up the fund, whatever it is, to purchase her back. He says, will you remain unfaithful? 
And the story was told to the Jews in Israel so that they would know and they would understand that they too have been adulterous, that they too have been, they have disdained God and who he is and his covenant with them and gone after other spouses, other idols, other things to satisfy them. And God was showing a judgment in this and saying that you, because you have done this, then I will judge you accordingly. But God never breaks his covenant with Israel. He keeps his covenant that he did with Abraham. And from there, David came. And from David's seed, Jesus comes. And God, in his keeping of his covenant, sends his son, just as Hosea makes a purchase for his wife back. So God sends his son to purchase us with his own blood, this high cost. And it's a declaration of the gospel, of the goodness of God, that it is not dependent upon the other person to keep a covenant in order to stay in love with me, but I will keep my covenant because of my goodness, because of my faithfulness, because I am trustworthy, because I am God, because I am holy and pure. Not because you are, but because I am, I will purchase you back. You are mine. This is the love of God. And so, in closing today, in conclusion, I want to... Um, I want to give us um, just kind of a, a really synopsis because I want to be concise with this. I want to be um, clear on what I believe after through this week um, where God has led me to plant firmly on the word of God, where we stand as a church regarding divorce. There's really two questions here. When can I get divorced and when can I remarry after divorce? That's really what the main two questions are that people have regarding it, Right. And so because of that, I want to um, be clear about this. So is my firm conviction from these passages here that there is concession for divorce? Um, and one, we see here in Matthew 5 and 19 that for sexual immorality. The second one is found in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16, when an unbelieving spouse wishes to separate. When is it? acceptable, permissible? When is there a concession for remarriage after sexual immorality then? And the, the answer is this. Marriage to another who has never been married or previously married a man whom uh, married a woman, man or woman who has been a victim of sexual immorality. So there are some, and I know people who have been divorced, and they believe firmly from the text that I am never to remarry again. And, and then until Jesus comes back or I die, to the glory of God. And I respect that. Um, I tend to fall, again, where right here, um, that concession for remarriage is upon this here. And it's a little bit nuanced and it's a little bit tricky. Um, and it is this, that anyway, if you are to remarry after a divorce, then, um, then it is to someone who has not been married or has been a victim of sexual immorality. Outside of these two concessions, death of a spouse is the only biblical reason to constitute remarriage, and that's based on 1 Corinthians 7.39. So Moses speaks about it, Jesus speaks about it, and Paul speaks about it. And this is our framework for understanding this. Now, as I said in the beginning, I make no presumptions. If, if I had it my way, 
I would sit down with every single person in this room one-on-one and talk through this. And I would hash it out and I would go back and forth and we'd reason together. And honestly, I'm happy to do that. To the glory of God, let us do that. Let us reason through the word of God together. But I don't have the privilege of doing that this morning. So you might be saying this morning, uh, well, what does God think of me? If that is true, Josiah, what does God think of me? And to that answer, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, there's this incredible story where the Pharisees bring up an adulterous woman to Jesus. The Bible says they found her in the act of adultery. I don't, don't ask me how they did that, but they caught her in the act of adultery and they brought her to Jesus and they say, they lay it out for her and they, they, they tell him, Jesus, the law says if someone commits adultery, they're to be put to death. Jesus kneels down, right? He's on the ground and he's circling around in the sand. I don't know what he's drawing. He's writing something. There's a lot of people that have guesses about what he's doing with the sand. Not looking at him. And after a pause, he says, he who have no sin cast the first stone. And it says that from oldest to youngest, they left, threw down their stones, and they walked away. Jesus says to the woman, woman, where are they? And he says, neither do I condemn you. So let it be known today, church, that if you've been affected by divorce, you have been divorced, are remarried, God does not condemn you. Jesus does not condemn you. I do not condemn you. This church does not condemn you. Go and sin no more, he says. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So where there may be less than what we would desire permissibility for divorce. There are oceans and oceans and oceans of grace. This is in regards to any sin. Where we have been found and caught and bound up and said, well, I guess that's me. If that's true, I guess that's me. God says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There are oceans of grace. So this morning, in closing, um, I want to do something a little different. We never do this. Um, but I, I want to give space um, and, and just in time to be able to pray and reflect, whatever you need. We're going to take communion. I'm going to lead us through communion. And then I would just ask you, if you feel at all like God is working in your heart, if there's something that you need time and space on, then stay up front. I'd love to pray with you. If you're in this place and, and you know the person who's up here, then come and pray with them. And I just want to give us time and space. I want us to be able to reflect. I want us to be honest with ourselves. I want us to be honest with God. And so, 
put on a little music. And uh, would you stand on your feet? And we're going to take communion service. If you could come and prepare the service in communion now. And then, again, as, I've, as I just mentioned, we come to this table not because of our faithfulness to God, not because we have proved ourselves worthy, because we have been the worthy spouse, but because we've been the unworthy, because we've been the adulterous spouse, because we have been the adulterer, because we have thrown out God and his love for us and his desires for us, his will for us. And we said, no, I want my own. I'll do it my way. Because of that acknowledgement, we come to the table. Under that premise, we come and we say, Lord, you're all I have. And so Jesus, on the night before he was betrayed, Paul tells us that he took the bread, he broke it, and he told his disciples sitting around the table, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup in like manner, and he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. Remember the cost. Remember what it cost me. Tomorrow when I die, you will know. You will know what it cost. You can turn it down a little bit. Woo! Da-da-da. And he says, man, we had a moment there, didn't we? You will know the fullness of this cost. And so we come today, we declare this, we express this, we take this and we believe this, we receive this again, the fullness of Jesus' sacrifice for us, church. So come, may we celebrate. And we're just gonna give some space up here. Again, I'm not jumping on the guitar. Um, I'm just gonna be here and, um, and we'll give some time.